Welcome to the Old Pass Podcast. My name is Pastor Benjamin Hicks, a pastor serving here in London, Ontario, and I'm joined today by... I am Michael Spangler. I'm a minister in Greensboro, North Carolina. And Zach Dodson and I am located on the northwest coast of beautiful, sunny, summery Tasmania. So happy you could join us this time, Zach. It wasn't the same without you. How are you holding up today? It's, we're doing we're doing well. The weather, I must confess, I know it's January in North America, so I'll say right now it's 65. There's not a cloud in the sky, and we have a nice, gentle, cool breeze coming off the sea. We're going to hit about 70 today, and it's just another day in paradise. Wow. For someone who's experiencing the Canadian winter, that that does not leave me with good feelings, Zach. You know, I think there's a, yeah, there's a bit of a difference there in what we're experiencing up here. What's the weather where you're where you're like, Mike? Um, probably more like yours than Zach's. Yeah, we don't have any snow outside though. You've All already right. built your igloo, your igloos, I imagine. Oh yeah, we got the polar yeah. bears running around, and you know, you know yeah. how it is in Canada. So I do. Yep. All right. Well, with that, we are resuming our study through the life of William Ames, and uh, this may be the first podcast in history that's devoted three separate podcasts to the life of William Ames. But I've certainly found it to be very profitable. This is all, of course, preparatory to uh, studying uh, the marrow of theology, which. Uh, is a book that we've certainly found very profitable in our own lives and is one of the wonderful works of Puritan theology. And I think it'll be most profitable if we provide this context of his life. Now, in uh, the Gospel of, jo of Mark, chapter 6, verse 4, the Lord Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And certainly preeminently true of the Lord Jesus himself, but I think the, uh, William Ames, as he followed in the footsteps of his master, could relate something to this, where celebrated and respected among the Reformed Church within Holland, an advisor on the Council of Dort, and yet his own countrymen working to prevent him from actually serving the church as a professor of theology, so for a time he uh, works as a lecturer in order to support his family. And uh, then, as, as we discussed last time, uh, he's actually brought in at the Franeker University. And uh, a wonderful journey of the Lord bringing him to that point. And we're going to see that it's from there that the Lord affects some wonderful um, works that continue to profit the church to this day. Just to give a bit of refresh i'm going to read the paragraph that we looked at last time and this is on page 42 of uh, meet the puritans in 1622 officials at franeker university a relatively new institution in the province of friesland ignored the english authorities and appointed ames as professor of theology on may 7 1622 ames gave his inaugural address on the urum and the thurum of the high priest breastplate. Four days later, after his inauguration as professor, he received the Doctor of Theology degree upon successfully defending 38 theses 
and four corollaries on, quote, the nature theory and practice, practical working of conscience, end quote, before Sibrandus Labertus, senior professor of the faculty in 1626, he was appointed rector magnificus, the highest honorary academic office in the university. During his 11-year tenure at Franeker, Ames began, became known as the learned doctor who tried to puritanize the entire university. Ames acknowledged the university was orthodox in doctrine, but did not feel that a majority of the faculty and student body were particularly reformed in practice. The faculty, in particular, was too dependent on Aristotelian logic for Ames' comfort and inadequately emphasized, inadequately emphasized human responsibility and the exercise of the human will in Christian living. Therefore, Ames began organizing a kind of rooming house or college in his house within the university where tutorial lessons, lectures, and numerous theological discussions took place. Now, uh, in uh, the history of Holland, you have what's called the Further Reformation or the Nader Reformatie, um, in which people talk about bringing further reformation to the Reformed Church. They recognize that there is a uh, there's been a wonderful deposit of doctrine and a reformation of the official teaching of the Reformed Church. But Ames would it be one of these um, people who's bringing in this thought that there must also be a further reformation of the life. Now, last time, Michael was beginning to speak about what uh, that meant in the Puritan context uh, in England, but now we're seeing that through Ames, this is starting to come into Holland, and that's going to have a ripple effect by God's grace for generations to come. Zach, I'm wondering, uh, when you think about the Nader Reformatie and Ames's um, connection to that, uh, what, what do you think about? What do you think about what we're reading here about Ames's own vision for the university where he's now been appointed. So I, I suspect that um, Ames is probably picking up on an undercurrent at the university of, I think we would say Froniker and Friesland that there's a lot more orthodoxy than there perhaps is piety. And I think that that's something we, we do need to, bear in mind as we deal with reformed uh, doctrine. And I think, I think going from that kind of to the Nader Reformatie, that was really the whole point of the Nader Reformatie was there's a lot of dead orthodoxy and people need to be living pious, godly lives. And I'll just, I'll say, I, I don't know if anybody's read uh, Jacobus von Lodenstein's sermons. They were translated by Bartel Elsout. I think they're in the series RHB has done translating a lot of these Dutch fathers. But he delves into this in those sermons. 
in depth. So I would I would commend those to you, and I can I can get a name for them. But there was just one other thing I wanted to observe about Ames here, and that is, you know, as we've watched Ames progress, it's been amazing to see God's providence sort of elevating him to positions where he can have an influence that is suitable with his learning. So I would, I would really say that Ames is, I mean, just the Lord is working. The Lord is working in his church. Ames is key for the Nada Reformatie. And later in the program, I will get those, the title, that volume of sermon. Very good, brother. Um, Michael, any thoughts on, on this or anything else that comes to mind? I'm thankful, thankful for his insistence. And I think every good Christian university and certainly theological seminary should have the same. The um, theologian Vitius said that we have to combine, we have to conjoin knowledge and piety. And may it always be so. Amen, brother. Um, this morning in our congregation's prayer meeting, we're slowly working through the book of Titus and those meditations. And so I spoke about what what uh, Paul, Paul means when he speaks to, about himself as an apostle, according to the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. And the idea is that the true appropriation of the gospel and the truth of God, if it doesn't manifest itself in godliness, then it's not true knowledge at all. And not only the Puritan understanding, but the biblical understanding. Ultimately, the the terrible tendency is for even the most holy things that we speak about to become very clinical, very academic, especially if we handle them all the time. So a good word for all of us that it really should be a, a worshipful act, a, an act full of reverence and fear of the Lord when we teach from the scriptures. I think that was the real burden that Ames had, and he was really worried about that kind of emphasis on head knowledge, the knowledge in the mind, which puffs up instead of the transformation of the heart, the will, and the life. So it's not just an, an philosophical difference here, but uh, really an important emphasis that we all do well to keep in mind. Now, uh, I want to reference the last part of that paragraph. As rector, he promoted piety, enforced Sabbath observance, shortened Christmas and Easter holidays, and tightened student discipline. His efforts produced what was called the Reformation of the 1620s. And I think it's, it's easy on one level to... Um, point out the problems, to recognize the problems, another to show leadership to actually bring about reformation. And this is a uh, most in encouraging thing that we see, bringing the word of God to bear upon these uh, things as he understands it. Now, um, yeah, maybe uh, I can ask Michael to begin uh, Sabbath observance, right? Imagine there may be some of our listeners who may not understand the Puritan understanding of the Sabbath and its real centrality to Christian piety. I think even in sometimes 
the the reformed world more broadly we're often interacting with people who appreciate puritan piety but would see the doctrine of the sabbath to be something that's actually constraining or something legalistic how would you answer those those sort of uh, concerns well, if we understand the basic principle that careful obedience to God out of grace is not legalism, then we ought to be Sabbatarians because the fourth commandment is one of the ten of the moral law. Now, people misunderstand. They think the fourth commandment passed away in the New Testament. But if you understand it rightly, the fourth commandment is just the moral principle that God laid down of one day and seven devoted to him. He determines which day. It's evident it was the, it was Saturday in the Old Testament. It's also evident that in the New Testament, it's Sunday. In John 20 and Acts 20, in 1 Corinthians 16, we see the apostles and Christ himself gathering as a church for what the Old Testament calls the Holy Convocation, but now on the first day of the week. It is a day for worship. It's a day to do what God did and to marvel in his own works on after he had ceased from his work of creation. So we're to put aside our own works and also our own thoughts and unnecessary talking about our own works that includes our own recreations because the principle of the day is not not to work, it's to worship. It's a day devoted to worship, public and private. It's a heavenly day for heavenly things. Or as it's called in Revelation 1, it's the Lord's day which is a good summary of its nature and its duties. So true. And, it, and it's amazing that something which is actually a delight to set aside a, a day for the worship of God, we would transform that into a burden as though that is something that is onerous to spend a whole day with the Lord. What do you think about that, Zach? Um, uh, as, as you've worked through your own understanding of the Sabbath, what what is what can you reflect upon? I think Zach might be frozen. I don't know if you can hear him, Michael. I can't. Right. No. Well, that's unfortunate. I'm hoping that Zach will unfreeze for us in a moment. I'll just make a, a point. You're all right. Zach, are you with us again? Yeah, I am with you all. For some reason, my internet decided to uh, to take a, a cut. But obviously, we're communicating basically on two different sides of the world. So sometimes these things tragically uh, happen. But you asked me about the Sabbath. And I just wanted to say that for myself, I found the Sabbath to be a real blessing. And I think many Christians... If they understand the Sabbath as a day where you put the world aside and that whole day is devoted to God, it, it can become a, a real blessing. And also, I would just say that the Lord's Day, observing the Lord's Day and worshiping God and, and not doing our own works on the Lord's Day, it's it's a almost a pillar of, of piety. It's it's refreshing. Like it's it's truly an an amazing thing and so i as michael was just speaking i'll just say that uh, i was thinking about how 
one of the, the best ways, best anecdotes, if you're struggling with the Lord's Day, I think is to is to sort of think more about the positives than the negatives. And when I say that, I don't mean that the fourth commandment doesn't forbid things. And I certainly do not mean that we do not need to be told that there's things that we shouldn't do, right? We do believe in, in negatives. We don't believe in the power of positive thinking. But I think that a lot of Christians, they sort of get caught up in this idea that, well, you, you know, I just, I can't, like, I can't, spend money on the Lord's day, or I can't engage in commerce is probably a better way of saying it, or I can't, you know, go out and do things. I can't recreate or whatever. And I would say, look, all that is true. And I'm not going to diminish any of that, but you're leaving all of that aside to come before the Lord Jesus Christ and to worship him both in public and in private. And the whole day should be dedicated to him. And if you if you quit thinking about do's and don'ts, and instead you you rather desire to hallow or sanctify the day by seeking out the ways that you can worship God, can study his word and grow in grace and knowledge, you, you'll find the day, I think, as a greater benefit. And as long as you're filling your time on the Sabbath day with godly things, I think a lot of those temptations to just waste time will be taken away. Those temptations to do things you shouldn't will be taken away. And and I just, I also think much of Isaiah 58 verses 13 and 14. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy or the holy of the Lord honorable and shall honor him, not doing thy own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then thou shalt delight thyself in the Lord. And I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob, thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So in, in simple terms, the scriptures is doing just what I said. So You've got the don'ts, right? Like you, basically the, the prophet is enforcing upon us that we need to make the Sabbath. We need to sanctify it, that it's the Lord's day, not our own day. But he goes on and he tells us there's blessings. I mean, just think about the language used, brothers. Um, if you delight yourself in the Lord on the Sabbath, he'll cause you to ride on the high places of the earth. He'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob. I mean, there's much encouragement there. I, I don't know. I When I think about that, I just think the Lord's day is worth it. It's valuable. It's precious. Mm. And um, obviously, I think also, as with many people, there's areas of my own practice on the Lord's day, particularly related to guarding my heart and uh, using time wisely that I, I need to be mindful of and, and repentant of when it happens. So yeah. I'll, I'll leave that there. Very helpful, Zach. Thank you. Um, you know, coming from a tradition that did not value the Sabbath at all um, in terms of observance of the fourth commandment, there was a priority on, on worship, certainly, but in terms of Sabbath observance, right, there just wasn't that understanding of, of the law of God. And once I came to that that conviction came to that understanding it, it's a very precious thing something that i think we need to guard and recognize i think and lament that 
it's it's been so desecrated in our own nations and often even in reformed churches sadly and um recognizing i think that perhaps one of the reasons Ames is enforcing Sabbath observance in a in a particular way. It might be that I think the articulation that you get from the Puritans is the fullest articulation of that. So it's the most consistent, the most biblical, I would argue. And in the Ames uh, Marrow, it's actually the longest chapter in the book. So both explaining it, defending it, and applying it uh, once we come to that point. So it's, uh, yeah, I think, but it's important now to see that he's not just just uh, talking the talk, he's also walking the walk in that regard. And uh, while, uh, uh, while we have you, Zach, I'd like, to, first I'll have you and I'll have Michael speak to uh, what is the, um, perhaps the relationship in Ames's mind between enforcing Sabbath observance and shortening Christmas and Easter holidays. Maybe you could explain uh, why that might be the case coming from the Puritan tradition. Well, I, I suppose, and I think Michael is probably the far more qualified individual to speak to this, but in, in simple terms, the Puritans believed that God had instituted the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, as the day that he is to be worshipped. And they believe that since the New Testament scriptures gave no warrant and did not permit any other days to be used, particularly for the worship of God, that we cannot, the church cannot declare its own holy days. And so what Ames is doing is he's, he's working reform. So he's bringing them to the proper duty, which is observing the Lord's day. And he's saying, hey, we need to be doing this. We need to be looking after the Lord's day. And he's also saying, look, brothers, Christmas and Easter are not commanded in the word of God. And therefore, if you lay, and I, I will be hard just for a quick moment. If you lay more emphasis on Christmas and Easter than you do the Lord's day, that is sin. Bottom line, that's sin. Now, I would I would say that you shouldn't be observing Christmas and Easter, and I'm trying to be gentle, but if you're more concerned about attending church on Christmas and Easter, um, if you're more concerned about those days, Easter is always on the Lord's Day, but if you're more concerned about those days because they, they are holy days, they are nothing more than man-made holy days, and you should see every Sabbath as a foretaste of heaven and a particular blessing. And, and so... Ames is drawing them away from superstitious practices to the practice that is given in the word of God for the New Testament church. Thank you, Zach. Michael, do you want to speak to this? I think what Zach said is good. I would just add that this was a common view among British Puritans and the Scots. In fact, Scots would even die for this when they resisted the Articles of Perth, which included the imposition of holy days. Um, some of the Puritans were well known for publicly resisting Christmas, insisting on working on Christmas Day um, to make it very clear that this was not a holy day appointed by God and therefore to treat it as holy is superstitious, just as Zach said. 
that also reveals another element, which is probably in play here, is that Christmas was an occasion for um, license and particularly for idleness. And that was very offensive to these men who wanted to devote all of life to the glory of God. Um, life is for work. We rest in order to work. We don't work in order to play, as so many think. And the spirit of Christmas, so to speak, is often opposed to that. I'm sure that that's part of what's going on here. It doesn't say in what we read whether he shortened Christmas and Easter as a in order to avoid celebration of the holidays at all. But you can guess that one thing on his mind, especially since it follows by saying he's tightened discipline, is he wanted the students to be working harder. He wanted them to stop wasting their time. That is, I imagine, um, it was a problem then just as much as it is now in college. People go to college to party, and it's not why it's there. And surely that was that was one thing he had in mind, if I could guess. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate uh, that, Michael. And I think in our, in our own day, we all need to, yeah, be a- asking that question: Is our work ethic governed more by the Word of God or by our own culture? Because I think you're right. There's something about you, um, as you articulate it in our in our contemporary context, in particular an emphasis on idleness. And I think that there's something we need to hear in this also for our own lives. Um, yeah, I think it, it would be useful to have a whole episode just on the whole nature of holy days because it's a fascinating subject in its own right. But I think it's just important to note here that you perhaps see that even though you have two Reformed churches, that in England and that in uh, in Holland, both professing the Reformed faith, what you're seeing is that among the Puritan movement that Ames is representing, there's a different emphasis than what he's seeing, both in terms of life and um, the emphasis on on heart religion. So with that, I think we'll, we'll move on and we will read the next paragraph here. The lecturing and prolific writing during his fr- uh, franicker years, sorry, through lecturing and prolific writing during his franicker years, Ames maintained a strong anti-prolatical and anti-Arminian stance. But his greatest contribution was in theology and as- ethics which he saw as a unified system that helped the Christian life, helped the Christian live a life of genuine piety. So just in, in passing, I don't know, we spent a lot of time on it, but it's important to understand those terms. So anti-Arminian, we referred to that last time discussing the whole history of the Canons of Dort. So you can refer back to that episode to understand the Armenian controversy, which remains very much alive to this day, I think, venture to say that uh, almost all evangelical churches today are influenced by Armenian doctrine in one way or another, where it refers to anti-prolatical position that would refer to opposition to prelacy or the uh, Anglican form of church government where you have a hierarchical um, a system of bishops 
that was inherited uh, from the Roman Catholic Church and somewhat retained in the English English context. And so he's wanting the Reformed Church to stand more upon the principle that the church is to be governed by a plurality of elders and uh, ministers of the gospel, which retain an equality one with another, while also having a role for synods and ecclesiastical courts um, as the congregations decide and comment. We had a bit of a discussion about this uh, in our first episode, um, but uh, yeah, any any comments on either of those things, brothers? We have to touch them before, no? Um, I'll mention that just that you saw a unified system that helped Christians live a life of genuine piety. I think that what we're going to appreciate about Ames in particular is he is a very consistent thinker, very consistent. If you read him at any point in his teaching, you're going to see there's a rigorous systematic thinking to everything. And I think even in his life, that's coming through. I'll just keep on reading here. Uh, he Here he wrote his two greatest works, Medulla Theologica, the marrow of theology, and De Concitia of the Conscience, translated in English as Conscience with the Power and Cases Thereof. In his system of theological and moral divinity, Ames incorporated the Ramist philosophy and method he had learned at Cambridge. Developed by Petrus Ramus, 1515-1572, a 16th century French Reformed philosopher, Ramism sought to correct the artificial sophistry of the Aristotelianism of the day, characterized by a breach between life and thought, between knowing and doing, and, in the case of religious life, between theology and ethics. So a lot covered there. Michael, I wonder if you could speak to this. Are you familiar with this difference between what's called Aristotelianism and Ramism? And do you think there are things that we would do well to pay attention to today about that theological and philosophical difference. I know enough to say something that I hope will be useful, but not enough to be exhaustive. Ramus simplified Aristotelian logic and saw himself as a, as a reformer. And it did bring a lot of blessing to the Puritan movement in that he taught a simple system of logic. One of its most evident marks are the trees. If, if you open up a book like Ames or some, someone else from that era, often the Puritans, you'll see brackets and a diagram that shows the subordination of topics. And that's often a picture of Ramism. And it, the fruits of it are good. You have simple logic devoted to a practical purpose. That's the best part of Ramism. You know, not to get too far afield though, Ramus was a bit of a firebrand. And even not even all reformed people 
Just one Before second, please. Just a second. Oh, there this you go. Is, this is the actual map of Ames's marrow. So, if you understand, if you want to know what he's talking about, um, the hallmark of there Ramism, and certainly Ames is the the quintessential Ramist. Um, yes. He would he would synthesize everything under the heading of this is what all of theology is, and the mm -hmm. so doctrine of living to God, and then. He breaks it under faith and observance and breaks down all of those under different headings. So, um, yeah, I uh, more to say about that, but that's just what he's referring to. But you were about to um, to explain something else about that that we need to understand. No, that's good to see. It's good to see. Yeah, so uh, a great man like Theodore Beza was very firmly opposed to Ramus on a number of points. He didn't appreciate his attack on Aristotelianism. He didn't appreciate um, Ramus's congregationalism as opposed to the Presbyterianism that Beza taught from scripture. Are you talking about Beza, Michael? Sorry, I just didn't catch that. Theodore Beza, yes. So I, I think we there'd be more to say to develop a, a balanced view of Ramus, but I think in the Puritans you see the benefit of his thought. I think the good warning is to that we shouldn't be too hastily anti-Aristotelian, because the best theologians of the Christian Church, even among the Reformed, gladly used Aristotle and adapted him for the use of theology. And I think Ramus, with his blessings, might have been a bit too extreme on that. Appreciate that, Michael. Zach, um, you certainly you can speak to anything else uh, that Michael said. I, think, I, think, I guess the question our audience may be interested in is, would you say that there is uh, a controversy in reform thought today about the role of Aristotelian logic and would this play into it at all? Well, that's, that's an interesting question, isn't it? So we are in the midst of this rather large and seemingly growing Thomistic retrieval. And obviously uh, the old saying, which there's probably, it's probably uncharitable, there's some truth to it is, do you want to see Aristotle baptized? We'll look at Thomas Aquinas. And so we, we are in the midst of a, somewhat of an Aristotelian retrieval. Um, Ramism though, I know there's been some studies done on it. There's there's one by a guy named Ong who wrote some sort of dissertation or thesis on Ramism, but otherwise I don't I don't know that anybody's nobody's trying to do theology in Ramist terms, in my understanding. I mean, lots of people are profiting from Ames, um, but more to the point of this Thomistic retrieval, you know, Aristotle provided a useful sort of metaphysic system to do theology. And I think we have to be very careful that in the midst of this Thomistic retrieval, we're not retrieving more Romish doctrine than we are actually a, a helpful system, a, a helpful handmaid to do theology as it were. And I, I'll just speak that 
I, and I know our brother Michael has made this point. I think this is worth noting to those that perhaps are listening and they're into the Thomistic retrieval. Um, the Reformed Scholastics retrieved just about everything that was useful from Thomas, and they used it, and they used it in a very godly and edifying way. And I think the Reformed tradition, it ought to be far more interested in the developments of the Reformed Scholastics than retrieving much from Thomas. But I, I think Michael's far more qualified to speak on this than I am. No, I, I appreciate that, Zach. Um, I think it'll be, be interesting as we go through it. I, I will myself say that I, I probably am a bit more of a partisan for the Ramus school, just in my own writing, uh, reading rather of uh, Perkins and Ames. I've just grown to really appreciate that way of doing theology. I don't say, of course, that there's not a lot to be gained from those like Beza or even those like uh, Turretin, who I also appreciate, who have a slightly different em emphasis. Um, and I also think that there's there's um, good things that we can learn from Thomas Aquinas as, uh, as well, who obviously is the preeminent Roman Catholic theologian uh, in their whole uh, tradition and was appropriated critically and carefully in some of his conclusions and and insights from our Reformed Fathers, while also strongly warned against in those areas where he had deadly errors. What I think you've, you've alluded to very well, Zach, is that today uh, there is a really interest in historical theology uh, coming in really every direction, an interest in the Puritans, an interest in, in Thomas Aquinas, an interest in uh, other uh, Reformed scholastics, which perhaps wasn't universally the case in uh, the the later 20th century among Reformed theologians. In my opinion, there was a little bit of a backlash against that coming out of perhaps some of the the presuppositionalists and those who would have a, a very anti-Greek um, philosophy approach in general. And of course, the era of, um, of more biblical theology and and perhaps uh, a depreciation of aspects of systematic theology, at least that's that's how I would see it. Um, Can I just say one thing certainly. very quickly? You, When you were mentioning presuppositional apologetics, you just I wanted to say this. While I disagree with much of the Thomistic retrieval and have deep concerns about it, I would level similar accusations at those that are opposed to the Thomistic retrieval, and hide behind sort of a, I don't want to overstate things, but hide behind sort of a presuppositional model and get a lot of their doctrine of God from not so solid sources. I have deep concerns about that as well. I just want to be clear. And so I guess in being clear, I just want to attack everybody. All right. That, that's clear, Zach. So obviously you have too many friends. So what we're doing today is we're, we're making sure we attack everyone. So you can send your fan mail or hate mail as the case may be to, uh, you know, we'll put your email in the, in the show notes as it were. Um, yeah. Hu huge discussion. I'm just trying to think about how to, uh, how to bring that section to a close. I think it would be, in in this area um you are going to see that ramism whether you you regard it as a entirely positive thing i perhaps 
have a bit of a bias in that direction and and uh, it would be interesting to see um, as we discuss some of the minutia of it later on uh, whether there, there's a difference in three of us here but i would regard it as as largely positive whether or not you regard it as entirely positive or largely positive it is very impactful on our reform tradition so one uh, one work that you may have heard of is the heidelberg catechism one of the most famous uh texts in reform tradition there's definitely is a, a ramus um strain within that that work i would argue whether or not it traces exactly from petrus ramus but the logic of it, not only in the branch of the of the whole argument of the catechism going out from one thesis to smaller um, discrete arguments but also in the ruthless ruthlessly practical uh, bent of the whole thing not being content until you've both explained the doctrine and applied it to the heart that is uh, something that's very prominent within a, a Ramus sort of way of thinking. And uh, I think there's some, a lot to be said about it, a lot to be said about in your methodology, recognizing that you've you've not completed the process unless you've also applied what, um, what you have explained from the word of God. Michael, a lot of things been said. Did you want to uh, weigh in on any, any of these things before we progress on? No, thank you. Okay. All right. Well, our next paragraph. Through his teaching, Ames established his own reputation as well as that of the academy where he taught. Students came from all over Europe to study under him. His most famous pupil was Johannes Caseus who would later carry the development of covenant theology well beyond Ames's thought. Yet Ames was not content, for all was not well with the university. Before we just go on, um, have either of you looked at Johannes Caseus's work? Obviously an important theologian. So, I so... Excuse me, Zach. What was that? Oh, I just, I always have this... Um sort of question in my mind is coxius a good guy coxius however you want to say it. is he a good guy or a bad guy and what is his exact influence and obviously i think good guy or bad guy i don't want to boil everything down into black or white i know his treatise on covenant theology i've got it on the shelf over there it's quite good apparently i haven't had a chance to read it but he wasn't much on the lord's day he and vutius had a huge dispute which i'm sure michael will be able to speak to i will say that of course i'm dressed like a coxsayan today but i i have been known to ask people if they're coxsayans based on their bright dress so anyway all right so, so, so how would you speak to that michael well i'm editing book six now excuse me book eight our volume six of van maastricht and the whole book book eight is written against coxsayas it's a covenant theology. It's a history of the covenant. We might today call it a biblical theology. It traces the progress of redemption from the very beginning of time to the very end, including a long church history. And the main thesis of it all, as far as I can tell, is that there is one covenant of grace. It's unified in its various dispensations. Coxianism 
basically denied that and had a different system of covenants, which is complicated, but put up more walls. We might see it as analogous to modern dispensationalism. But he said something that I never heard any dispensationalist say, which is that the people of God under the Mosaic Covenant or in the Old Testament, they did not have full forgiveness of sins. And this was the major error in Coxeus that ruined the whole system. God passed over their sins. He looked over them, but he didn't actually forgive them. He couldn't until Christ died. Now, this is related to the nature of Christ's promise in the eternal covenant. And the sum of it is the Maastricht and solid reform theology says rightly that when the son agreed to the terms of redemption in eternity, he took on the whole guilt of all his people. And it was as good as paid for so that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David could be just as much saved by the same Christ and by the same grace as we are now in the New Testament. Though since Christ has come, we see him more clearly. Many benefits to being in the New Testament, but it is not a new covenant. It is the same covenant of grace. That's the key, and that was undermined by Coxeus. And I can't blame Ames for that. Maastricht follows Ames very heavily, even as he critiques Coxeus. So, but I hope that helps as a summary. If I don't want to derail us too far, but Michael, I'm I you've piqued my curiosity. I I said that. Um, Coxeus made important contributions to covenant theology, which I thought were not all bad. And maybe I've had some bad reading on this. So this is why I want to ask you. I thought Vitzius was kind of the mediating position and borrowed a lot from Coxeus. And I know that Coxeus's doctrine of the covenant and testament of God has recently been translated. I've got a copy of it. I haven't read it, but I, I thought these were, in it being translated, I thought it was kind of an approved, like, good source. Like, you know, you, student of Reformed theology, you should read this. And I thought Vitzius actually kind of was mediating between Vitzius and um, and Coxius. So if you can offer any insight, that would be tremendous, because I'm ignorant on this point. So could I... I I'm not ready. Right. To... Sorry, go ahead. Is it okay if I wait into that, Michael, or did you want to speak to that? That's fine. Please okay. do. Yeah, so uh, wading into the history of Dutch Reformed Covenant theology is is not an, uh, a simple thing, but I found it to be a very profitable thing myself, and I think that what Michael has said and, and what Zach has said is, is uh, both important. Um, you, what you do have is, as My Michael says, some important deviations from mainstream Reformed theology and Reformed orthodoxy from Caseus, the um, I would say certainly a de-emphasis on the Sabbath as something that's uh, have abiding moral validity would be one of them, a serious one, and the other would be exactly as Michael says, sort of rending the unity of the of the covenant of grace through a very complicated system. So, what? Um, what you have when you come to the scripture 
is a lot of a lot of information about the Lord's dealings with his people from Genesis to Revelation. And covenant theology is the way in which we harmonize it all. God has one covenant of grace with his church. There are two administrations in the old covenant and the new covenant. What um what you have with Caseus is of a lot of important exegesis as far as looking at the development of that covenant of grace through redemptive history, but uh, such an attention to the particularities of that development in the time of Abraham, in the time of Moses, in the time of David, and so forth. The the unity and the harmony of those is is de-emphasized most, most egregiously in, in seeing uh, the sentence of the of those under the old covenant not forgiven. So what you have is uh, Vutius would have been one of the contemporaries of Caseus who would have uh, opposed him. And the Reformed Church at that time would have been very divided, sort of between these two camps. And um, as it works out exactly as, um, as Zach says, one of the students of Vutius by the name of Herman Witsius writes the economy of the covenants between God and man. And he writes very respectfully of Caseus while also landing decidedly with, um, with Fuzius, his, uh, his mentor. And I would say that um, that's sort of what has carried the day among confessional reformed and Presbyterian churches, that understanding. The reality is that if you try to read Caseus and, and I, I have, you'll find some things are helpful, but as far as the overriding system, there's a lot of idiosyncrasies. And um, I don't find that particularly the case in Ames. However, I do see that within Ames, there are some, um, some statements about the Mosaic Covenant in particular that could give rise to something like Caseus if they're not read in a in an appropriate light. So I think that will come out as we do consider uh, Ames's covenant theology. And he is very prominent as a Reformed theologian, very influential in in that way. And I think that will that will bear itself out. Um, Michael, is that more or less aligned with your own reading on on this subject? That was useful. Thank you. Yes. Very good. Well, I aspire to get through this the remainder of this uh, biography in this episode, but I also did not want to cut short some of these discussions. Um, perhaps what I will do is I will read to the conclusion of this chapter, and we will we will at least get that far, or, or this paragraph, I should say, the conclusion of this paragraph. So we've read about Caseus. Um, yeah, Ames was not content for. All was not well at the university. Some students and faculty members did not appreciate Ames's efforts to bring deeper and further reformation. A clique of professors led by Johannes Mocavius sabotaged Ames' efforts. Moreover, continuing arguments between Ames, Libertas, and his Aristotelian colleague Mocavius poisoned the intellectual climate at Franeker. While the damp sea air of Friesland eroded Ames's health, 
Those problems combined with his wife's desire to rejoin her countrymen convinced Ames to look for a new place in which to serve. So we're going to see here that um, the, the period at Franeker, it's fruitful, and that's where his writing ministry, which um, which is still having influence this day, had its most productivity. And unfortunately, it ends on this somewhat sour note. Um, I think that uh, perhaps looking at his uh, his final years and his lasting influence, which is the, the subject of the re remainder of this chapter, maybe we'll, we'll leave until next time. But any concluding thoughts on just the life of uh, William Ames up to this point as he's ending his time at Frantic or a bit of a sour note, I suppose. Um, although certainly productive in other ways. Zach, maybe I'll put you on the spot. What do you think about when you think about this uh, story as we've read it so far? I I just see, in a sense, this this working of God's providence in this in this man's life and. I think every child of God sees it in their own lives where they they have seasons where they feel like there's much productivity where things are relatively good and there's seasons of affliction, there's seasons of struggle. And I, I just think, and I, I have no idea why this is really in my mind, but I I think of um, the Israelites coming to the waters of Marah. And obviously the waters are Mara of Mara, Mara in Hebrew, bitter. They can't drink of the water. It's bitter. And the Lord, you know, ultimately in God's providence, they're able, there's a tree that's thrown into the water and they're able to drink the water and it makes it sweet. And I, I just think that, you know, as we go through many, you said sour experiences, I'll say bitter. As we go through many bitter, bitter experiences, and at times we have to drink the waters of Mara, the Lord so often does make those experiences sweeter by his grace and by his work in our lives. And I I can't help but see, in a sense, that's what the, the Lord is doing with Ames at Froniker. I think for a lot of us, for, for myself, perhaps, too, there would be a temptation to think, well, you know, I've arrived at the university, I'm teaching divinity students, I'm writing, I'm kind of on the top of my, of my game, and the Lord obviously made it where Ames could not continue there. But it was in the Lord's good providence, and the Lord really knows what we need better than, than we know it ourselves. And this was what Ames needed at that point. He needed to get out of Froniker, and the Lord was gonna was gonna lead him. And just a little, I suppose, sort of foreshadowing of what's coming in the next episode. You know, Ames is is going to try to go to Spain as as Paul did, not literally to Spain, but he's going to try to make one of those journeys, and that's also not going to come to pass. And and the Lord's ways are mysterious, and. Um, we, we just don't know, but God is sovereign and we're but worms and, and we're men of dust and we thank the Lord for his grace. Very good word, brother. Uh, did you have anything to add to that, Michael? No, just amen. It's true. I have one question, Zach. Why did you, uh, why do you question people with bright clothing of being Kaseans? 
you've never you've never heard this. I've never heard this. So I I'm pretty sure everyone is still in suspense about that. So you can't leave us hanging. Why do you ask that? Oh, well, no, it's it was a serious debate over ministers' garb at the time of the Second Reformation in the Netherlands. And the Coxeans believe that ministers should wear like a powdered wig. And I'm not exactly sure of the whole thing, but could wear brighter colors. I'm not exactly sure what that looked like. And the Voetians did not believe that ministers should wear wigs and that ministers should wear black, which is actually why in the Dutch tradition, in the very conservative Dutch churches, the ministers basically exclusively still to this day wear black. It goes all the way back to that. So sometimes, you know, you'd have a, most of the time I have in seminary, I'd have a professor who would perhaps dress what I would consider a little brightly. And I would sort of say, well, are you going to teach us Coxsayan doctrine? Um, and it was just a little ribbing, right? So that was all. Very good. So based upon this episode, I guess you have a, a spectrum of people who are more Coxsayan or uh, more of Well, I'm, I am the, I'm the one in the yellow tie. So yes. I'm the, I'm the Coxsayan here in this episode, right? So I'll own it. So this is about the most ecumenical podcast I think people are likely to listen to just for for that uh, that variety. So what a added value that is. Well, brothers, this has been very uh, very edifying for me, very helpful, and delighted to continue on this journey with you. And a good uh, reminder, exactly as Zach said, that ultimately. In studying this man, it's not because we're elevating any man, but we're elevating the God who used this man for the good of his church and the God that we would delight you, listener, to know personally yourself by committing yourself to him in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our prayer for you today. Until next time, this is the Old Path Old Paths Podcast. God bless you, and goodbye for now.